Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. Energy has become the new buzzword, but do we fully understand the true science behind the power of it and its healing impact? Joining us today is energy healing expert, Jill Blakeway. Jill is a licensed and board certified acupuncturist and herbalist and is the founder of the Unova Centers in New York. Jill is also the author of several eye-opening books, most recently, Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. Jill's work has helped a tremendous number of people successfully conceive, heal from a range of medical challenges, and maintain overall vitality. We're so excited to finally learn about the incredible power and importance of our energy and how we can work with our energy to optimize our lives. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Thank you for joining us. And in your amazing book, Energy Medicine, you talk about your background and what ultimately led you to gaining a ton of interest in energy medicine. But I'd love to know a little bit more about your journey and your journey to health and what ultimately inspired you to pursue Chinese medicine as well as other forms of energy medicine. Well, it's a bit of a long story in some ways, Jonathan, and I didn't have a plan. And I, I, people are often disappointed to hear that because I think often people's stories, you know, I woke up one day and decided to be something. I, as you probably read in the book, I was working for the Queen in London and I was going through a divorce and I went to Key West. And it was at a time in the 90s where young men, particularly young men, were dying of AIDS and had moved to Key West because their families had ostracized them. And I had a tiny child, I think she was like one or two, and we would end up taking these people in, you know, we would be surrogate family for them. And that was the beginning of me understanding how much I enjoyed being there for people. And while I was in Key West, I suffered from a sort of chronic illness that was hard to deal with. And someone in a health food store suggested I see an acupuncturist. And so I did. And he solved something that had been going on for two years. And that was it. I set off with my tiny daughter in a truck and I drove to California to go to acupuncture school. And I sort of found myself there. And I have been a practitioner of Chinese medicine for over 20 years. And it has been my passion. But I stumbled on it almost by accident. Although these days, I believe that there is intelligence moving in your life and you start to get moved into alignment in some ways with your soul. And that was how I was moved. Isn't it amazing how everything really does happen for a reason? And sometimes it's such a small thing that happens so randomly that ends up having the greatest impact on our lives. I think there is an alignment. And when it happens, it feels good. So I don't think everything in some ways, Jonathan, happens for a reason. My first book was called Making Babies, and it's about how to get pregnant. And I've dedicated a lot of my career to helping infertile couples have babies. And they always ask me, or they often ask me, why me? And honestly, the longer I've practiced, the more random I have seen that be. And people always blame themselves. And, and women have asked me, is it because I drank in college? Or no, no, it's extraordinarily random in some ways, or at least I don't know the pattern. But I think there is an alignment for your soul and you know it when you feel it because it feels there's an ease to it. When I started to study Chinese medicine, I loved it from the get-go. It was a four-year master's and then a doctorate after that. And none of it felt like work. It felt like the most amazing journey of discovery. And I think that's when you know that you're on your path. I couldn't agree with you anymore. And I think that you're right. The way that you said that there's sort of an ease to it. I really do believe that as well. When you're in alignment with what you're doing and you know that what you're doing has a purpose and it's meant for you. Now, I know you work a lot with energy healing, Reiki and pranic healing. And oftentimes people hear the word energy, but they don't really seem to get a full grasp on what that means. So I'd love for you to speak to this a little bit more and give us your definition of energy and energy healing. 
I'm glad to. And to be honest, I wrote the book, Energy Healing, The Science and Mystery of Healing, because I wanted to understand it more fully, both from a scientific perspective and from a more spiritual perspective. And my patients always say to me, what is qi? You know, in Chinese medicine, we call energy qi. And I think it's important to point out that in every ancient culture, there was an idea of a life force. It's only the modern Western cultures that have dropped that thought that we have a life force. In India, it was called prana. In Greece, it was known as the pneuma. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, it was the breath of life. And in Chinese medicine, it's called qi. And I always explain qi like this. You have a physical body that is somewhat mechanical. But the part of our body that we take for granted in some ways is the way it is aware. Every cell in your body knows who it is and where it is and what it's supposed to do. And a lot of chronic illness is actually lack of awareness on a cellular level. So I always describe energy as your body's intelligence. It's also though, all the bits of you that aren't physical. So it's your thoughts and your feelings and your beliefs and even your memories to a certain extent are part of your energy field rather than the physicality of you, which is why you can use your thoughts and your feelings to affect your energy field. And that's where people assume it becomes a little bit woo and hard to pin down. But in energy medicine, when I was researching the book, I became very clear that it is about awareness and that cells sometimes or collections of cells lose their ability to communicate. Different systems stop communicating between each other. And many of the energy medicine practices, including Chinese medicine, because acupuncture is a form of energy medicine, help with that communication via a variety of systems. So that's usually, it's a bit long-winded. I usually end up just saying that energy medicine is all those modalities, and they're very broad, that use the electrical energy of the cell and influence it either to diagnose or heal. Absolutely. And I really like that you mentioned that acupuncture is a form of energy medicine, because I don't think a lot of people realize that, but I mean, qi means energy, right? And it's moving the energy. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, you mentioned thoughts and our belief systems can have our energy and they can impact our physiology. So how important is the way that we talk to ourselves? Because oftentimes, maybe our beliefs from a young age or just growing up, we sort of associate ourselves with a certain characteristic and we hold on to that. And even in your book, you quote, I am so afraid I will not get better. And that's your driving behavior. And you kind of talk about how we're almost attached to being this like patient, or I don't want to say victim, but we're kind of attached to that sickness or that particular disease or the image that we have in our heads. Well, I want to start by saying that illnesses are very complicated and it's not your fault if you get sick. It's complicated. It's a complicated, it's often about epigenetics. It's often about your genetic predisposition combined with your lifestyle, some of which is within your control and some of which is without. And I always say that because I think I like people not to just beat themselves up, <laughs> you know, at all. We all end up dying of something and we all get older and things wear out. But, you know, I did want to look at how our thoughts affect our energy field. So in the book, as you know, I have a whole chapter on placebos. And one of the things that I think people don't necessarily understand is that placebos create measurable change. It's not just that you feel a bit better. So for instance, at the University of Turin, they gave Parkinson's patients saline and told them it was dopamine, which is what they need. And they produced their own dopamine in response to the placebo. So their thought about what was helping them helped them to produce their own version of the chemical they thought they were being given. And I think that's important to note, which doesn't mean that you can just think positively and get yourself out of any situation. But I also became really interested in how our thoughts affect other people. And my first inkling that there was some kind of connection through a field was through some very anomalous research from Princeton University in the engineering department. And I always assume that the engineering department is like the least woo-woo department at Princeton. You know, they're literally making machines. But they had a female grad student who wondered if she could design a machine that could be moved with the human mind. And I interviewed the 
man who was the dean of engineering at the time, a man called Dr. Robert Jean, for my book. Um, he has since subsequently died, sadly. He was elderly when I met him. And he didn't think for one minute that she could pull this off at all, but he thought it would be an interesting sort of grad student project to think about how would you design a machine that the human mind might even affect. But she did. She pulled it off and she created something called a random event generator, which thanks to decaying atomic material, spits out random numbers. And what she found is that when someone focuses on it with intention, they become noticeably less random. And when more than two people, more than one person focuses on it with feeling, the same feelings, they become less random in a way that is statistically impossible. And they were so struck by these results at Princeton that they created a separate lab in the engineering department called the Pear Lab to study these results, which nobody could explain through conventional physics at the time, although Dr. Jean in the end wrote an extremely good book called, it's right in front of me, it's called Consciousness and the Source of Reality, um, that does explain, but it's heavy on the physics, I'm afraid, <laughs> but it does explain why this worked. And they've created little around portable random event generators and they've taken them everywhere. These days, these studies have been done by a foundation called the Global Consciousness Project and they've taken random event generators to the Trump inaugural and to yoga retreats and churches and all sorts of gatherings of people. And what they have found is that love and compassion have the strongest effect on the machine when people gather together in love and compassion, but fear is also extremely connective and it changes the machine. Wow. And if it changes the machine, it can change our reality, obviously, if it can affect a mechanical structure like a machine. And I thought those were very significant in times where people are having to choose whether to be compassionate, which is very expansive energy, or whether to be scared, which is a very contractive energy, because that's having an effect on the world we live in and the reality that we experience. That's super fascinating, especially considering that it really shows us how much of an impact that our energy does have on people around us. And I remember I experienced this firsthand. I had a very minor, small injury a few years ago, and I probably would have recovered within two to three weeks, but I kept going to different physical therapists and they made the problem sound so much larger than it was. And so I believed them and sort of accepted that as my reality for about a year until I finally decided to just you know go running and sort of put it past me, and I felt completely fine. So I sort of had to change the energy and the reality in order for myself to actually get better, because if I kept listening to their you know, diagnoses, which again, in a lot of medical situations, you do have to take diagnoses very seriously, but in this case, it was something super small, and it took me shifting the energy to actually get better. Well, this reminds me of a story that I tell at the end of the book that I'm sure you remember, yes. which is about a young man called Madhu Anziani. And Madhu fell out of a dorm window in college and broke his neck. And his spinal cord was 99% severed. And he was in a coma for many weeks. And when he came around, he was told that he would be tetraplegic. And he was lying in bed and he told me something. He was only 23 at the time. And when I interviewed him, he said, I wasn't stupid, Jill. I knew I'd probably spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, but I never let that belief really permeate my being. And I tried to live in joy. And that's pretty much a direct quote when I interviewed him. And I remember thinking at the time that showed extraordinary presence of mind for someone of 23. I would not have had that presence of mind. So Madhu lay in bed attempting to feel joy and not letting his diagnosis permeate. And he made a noise. And, you know, if you're tetraplegic, making a noise is hard because your diaphragm doesn't move. It's not innovated, so it doesn't move. And so, but he made a noise and he felt that noise throughout his body, he felt the vibration. And he had the presence of mind to realize that if he could feel it, he must have some nervous system left because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to feel anything. He wouldn't be able to feel vibration. So he started to sing in tones and people came in and taught him mantras and someone bought him a Tibetan prayer wheel and his dad would lift him up and move his hands so that he could 
move the wheel and say, on my pad me home. And bit by bit, he started to have more feeling. And at some point, a nurse said to him, Madhu, you need to focus on being the happiest tetraplegic you can be rather than thinking you're going to get better because it'll make you unhappy. And I think that was well-meaning. I'm sure it was well-meaning. And he told her, I'm going to walk out of here. And three months after being admitted to the hospital, he did. And what I like about that story, you guys, is that it took a village. Madhu got his head in the right place. Madhu discovered that vibration, which is the point of energy medicine, my book, creates connection. But he was also at UCSF, which has an amazing neurological department. He had skilled surgeons, really good physical therapy, great nursing, a really supportive family, a big group of friends who were pulling for him. You know, his recovery, as all recoveries, was complex and multifaceted. But part of that recovery was energy, vibration, the vibration of sound down his spine, which created enough movement that it started to create connection and his belief that he could heal. And Madhu is now a sound healer. You can look him up on the internet. And (laughs) as you would be, having healed your spinal cord injury with it with sound and it's one of my favorite stories because it's not it's miraculous but not magical he didn't just heal in a vacuum exactly and i remember i first heard you tell that story when we met at the biohacking event and it had such a profound impact on me and then i read it again in your book and it really does show us how important it is to never lose hope always keep the energy around us positive and find ways to really raise our vibration so that we could live optimally Yes, I really think that's true. I have to tell you that there are other studies in the book that have nothing to do with the Healy's mindset. And I'm thinking uh, in chapter four of the book, I um, talk about a man I met who was a professor at City University. His name is Dr. William Bengston. And Dr. Bengston learned an energy medicine technique from a psychic healer and decided to take it into the lab. He's pretty much just a pure scientist, Dr. Bengston. And he did research on mice who obviously do not know they're supposed to heal. So it kind of takes the placebo effect out of this. They took mice that were specially bred to have cancer, which is how pharmaceuticals are tested. I know that's really sad. Usually when I'm in a crowd of people and I say that, I look at everybody's gloomy faces. So I have to say to everybody listening at home, these particular mice have a happy ending. But he took mice that were specially bred to have cancer. And those mice always die on day 27. And that's how pharmaceuticals are tested. If you can keep the mouse alive to day 30, then you have something that's really impressive. So they injected the mice with mammary cancer, breast cancer, and Dr. Bengston did his technique and the mice lived. They got better. They got much worse actually before they got better. So they looked really scary, but then they got better. And when they re-injected them with breast cancer, they could no longer get it. Their immune systems had been permanently changed. And so what Dr. Bengston did, as any good scientist would, these are very anomalous results. And he wondered if he could teach anyone to do this. You know, good science needs to be replicable. There's no point in having a special technique that a special somebody can do that nobody can see. We all have to build on each other. So he gathered together skeptical colleagues and students, and he taught them all the technique. And they've done this on thousands of mice at City University now. And apart from a few outliers, and I mean very, very few, like one or two, they have all lived and gone on to be immune to the cancer that they have survived from. And I just mentioned that because we've talked a lot about your mind and your thoughts and the way they affect your energy field. But this was actually had nothing to do with the mice thinking they were going to get better at all. And so again, a very interesting result, I think. That is absolutely. And what I wanted to say earlier to your point was, you know, they've done studies in cancer patients, even stage three, stage four cancer patients. And the ones who had, they were obviously getting chemotherapy and conventional treatment, but the ones who had the faith and the positive energy and the thoughts that they would get better, oftentimes they did. So I think that shouldn't go unnoticed for sure. And I'm curious, I know that you work a lot with women on fertility and how important, because I know you do a lot of energy work, but how important is shifting the mindset? Because I find that often women who are trying to become pregnant, 
and have failed attempts, that can kind of, you mentioned earlier, but that can kind of have an impact on how you feel about yourself. So how important is changing that shift in your energy? It's complicated with the fertility patients. I think I try and help them stay steady and in belief that it can possibly happen without them going up and down every month. You know, if you really just believe it's going to happen this month and then it doesn't, you end up having these swings that I have seen be really hard on people and cause depression over time. So as a practitioner with a ton of experience these days, particularly with fertility, I don't encourage people into a kind of false optimism that swings about. I more um, have them open to the possibility and steady while we get on with work. And my job with fertility patients is a bit of, you know, I have lots of strings to my bow because I'm a herbalist and I have a doctorate in Chinese medicine and I teach gynecology. So this is my subject at the doctoral level. And so I prescribe herbs that just correct chemical imbalances and hormonal imbalances and help with uterine lining. I use acupuncture in some ways quite mechanically to promote blood flow to the uterus and the ovaries, but I also use it slightly more energetically to balance hormones and things like that. And then I try and just keep the patient in cautious optimism so that they don't swing around with uh, you know every monthly disappointment because that is grueling. It sounds like an incredible approach. And I have heard many instances where acupuncture and Chinese medicine has helped a lot with fertility. And I've also heard of countless stories where couples who sort of lost hope that they could conceive naturally, go to adopt a child, and then after that, conceive naturally. So it shows that once they find that positivity and fill that hole that they feel, it corrects things physiologically as well and allows them to conceive naturally, which I find to be very interesting. It is interesting. Once the pressure's off, we all have anecdotes like that in our practice, once the pressure's off. But the problem is that you can't fake taking the pressure off, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have tried with people, you know, and that pressure makes them run a little tighter and that's sort of understandable. But yes, acupuncture has a long history of enhancing fertility, thousands of years. There's a wealth of knowledge in traditional texts on it. And I think the reason that it works so well is that, as I said, before, a lot of imbalances, including hormonal imbalances, are issues of a lack of awareness and communication at a cellular level. And that's never more true than in the reproductive system, where everything has to happen at the exact right moment. So for instance, the uterine lining is only really receptive for an embryo for three days in the cycle. And you can imagine how easy it is for that to just be off. And that gets recorded as unexplained infertility. But in my experience, unexplained infertility is often lots of little synchronizations that are not working properly that can be tightened up. And acupuncture is a very good way of doing that. Definitely. And I personally have benefited so much from acupuncture. And I've spoken with people before who might not have a severe health complication, but I find that they could benefit from acupuncture. So I'm curious to get your take on what types of ailments could acupuncture be the most effective for, as well as Reiki, because I know that Reiki is another great form of energy medicine. Well, let's take Reiki first, because in some ways that's simpler. I'm not a Reiki practitioner. I do a form of energy medicine that's sort of steeped in the Chinese tradition and is a form of Qigong. But Reiki masters and Qigong masters emit measurable frequencies from their hands. And in fact, the Qigong masters, who are very highly trained indeed, the frequencies they emit from their hands are a thousand times greater than the strongest frequencies in the body, which are usually from the heart. And that was measured in a Japanese study of Qigong masters in 1992 and and backed up by further studies. So there is a measurable force. And as you know, from the book, when I was doing acupuncture, I um, wondered what was going on in my own body because I have um, strong energy that comes out of my hands that people can feel. And I've never really known what it was, which is why I don't make a big deal of it in case it's nothing. (laughs) But they put an EEG on my brain and an EKG of my heart. And they found that what I do, and I've probably just taught myself to do this because 
you know, over the years of treating patients is that my heart and my brain go into resonance with each other. They go at the same frequency. And then the patient's heart goes at the same frequency as mine. And when that connection happens, that is when information gets passed over from healer to healee. And that's pretty much, I think, how Reiki or Qigong or all of the sort of hands-on, hands-off kind of methods of healing work. Acupuncture works a little differently, as I found in my book. But that's how the the hands-on healing is working. The practitioner is doing something in their own body, which generates a measurable frequency that affects the patient. And that isn't as strange as it might sound. Or Some of the best uh, orthopedic hospitals now put electric current through bone to speed up the healing of bone and soft tissue. And it is, in fact, the same low frequency that healers produce from their hands that's measurable. Definitely. And I've been privileged to have Reiki done myself and it was unbelievable. I can't even explain just from one session alone, how open my heart chakra was and how great I felt. So I encourage a lot of people to definitely give it a try. Now, I know that working with energy as a healer, you're working with a lot of possibly heavy energy. So what tips do you have for people or for healers in particular who are dealing with this energy? If you have any tools that they can sort of, you know, cleanse themselves of that energy? Yes. This is a really common question actually that I get. And it is possible to pick up people's energy, but it's not as big a deal as you might think, unless you decide it's going to be. It gets a bit overblown, I think. The truth is that you have autonomy over your own energy field. You just do. And so people you know, talk about energy vampires and hooks and things like that. I am pretty disciplined about cleaning off my field. And I'll tell you how I do it. And I do it after every patient. And I also, I don't get very depleted by what I do. I've met healers who get very depleted, but I just let this pass through me. I'm convinced I'm not remotely special. Just like Dr. Bengston could teach all the students to do the healing technique that cured breast cancer in mice, yeah? He never met a student he couldn't teach. So we can all do this. And so, and his technique is a sort of mind distraction technique that takes your ego out of it so that you can just channel an energy frequency. I do something similar. I don't distract my mind. I sort of empty it, but it's, it ends up having the same effect. And what that means is I'm not particularly drained at the end of the day. At the moment, I'm treating lots of patients on Zoom and I'm not remotely drained by it. So that's the first thing, that you don't have to drain your own energy to heal other people. That's when you're doing it a little bit from your ego, and then it's exhausting, I think. And then what I do after every patient is I just ground myself, and I do that just by using my mind to visualize, and I send out tree roots from the bottom of my feet and from my sacrum, and I just see them go into the earth. And I watch them go deeper and deeper and deeper until I'm really very grounded. And then I just make a separation in my mind between the fact that I have this physical, rather mechanical body and a consciousness. I have awareness and that my awareness is actually bigger than my mind. I can watch my mind. I can meditate and watch my mind rumble on like minds do. (laughs) And there has to be someone who's doing the watching and that would be me, my awareness. And in fact, that awareness is as big as our shared consciousness and as tiny as every little cell and its own cellular awareness. And so what I do is I open up the top of my head a little bit energetically and I just pull awareness, source energy into my head. And I just visualize it as light, dynamic, moving, warming, transformational, aware, intelligent light. And I just bring it through my body until I'm full of my own light, but grounded in my body. And then I push that light outside of my body for about an inch, an inch and a half. And I just let it pop off little hooks. And I just see it as little fleas, nothing. They just go into the ground. You know, people's need, the pull of people's projections onto you can feel heavy. And I just pop it off. That has worked for me. And I haven't picked up anything particularly negative or, you know, in a long time. So that is my tip for cleaning off your field. 
That sounds like a really great tip and something that we should all try because as positive as you might be as an individual, we all have those friends or family members who are just super, super negative and we might still love them. We might still want to have a relationship with them, but they're just, you know, constantly negative and draining and they have that very heavy energy. And so obviously healers probably experience this way more often because you're dealing with so many different people. But even for just a common person every single day, you probably do come into contact with at least one person a day who does have negative energy and you could feel it just by interacting with them. Well, I try and just be retain some sort of equanimity about the patient. So I don't judge them at all. I think people heal when they feel safe. And so part of making them feel safe is to hold them in sacred space. But as I have done my work, one of the things I've begun to understand is that our consciousness is shared at a bigger level. We are all little individuated aspects in the physical of a much bigger shared consciousness that we are not dual as spirits, although we come into the physical to experience duality. And so we are in fact all the same thing. And then what makes some people feel heavy is that it is an illusion of separateness. We think we're separate from other people and then we start to project onto them, which is a projection from our egos. And it's important to remember, we all do this. Some people do it more than others. And so you experience them as a bit heavier, but we allow our egos to create projections onto people that are just your thought forms. They're nothing. They're not about the people you're projecting onto necessarily. And some people are very entranced by those projections, particularly negative projections, um, I think. So A, it's important when someone's projecting onto you not to take it in. Um, But it is actually important to remember or even to find someone who can help you experience. That's what I've been doing on Zoom recently with patients. The connection that is bigger than your physicality The Tao is what it's called in Chinese philosophy. It's said to be the container for all of our experiences as human beings. And we're said to ripple out of the Tao into the physical and then we ripple back down. But our consciousness, which is energetic, never ends. It just transforms. And I think some understanding that we're not separate would solve a lot of the world's problems, obviously. If people really got that, they wouldn't be able to other their fellow human beings in the way that they do. So that is how I approach it with the patients. I see myself as just an individuated aspect of the same thing as them. So I hold them in very sort of sacred space, the same space that I would want to be held in myself. And I try not to project onto them, you know, anything like a story, a judgment, anything while I just do my work. And for that reason, I don't choose who I treat. Do do you know what I mean? It's not like I just don't judge them. And that kind of neutrality has been really important in my practice. That's amazing. Now, I also have a question for, let's say, a couple or somebody who's in an intimate relationship or a marriage where one of the partners, or this could even be in a friendship, complains often, isn't very optimistic, might just sort of have a more negative mindset. How does that other person who's a little bit more positive protect themselves on a daily basis from feeding into that negativity? Well, you know, hurt people hurt people. So um, (laughs) having some compassion is good, but you don't have to react to everything. I stay very steady. Obviously, it's easier with patients because they then go away again. (laughs) And I'm married to a man who's very lovely. (laughs) But I just stay steady and don't let things permeate. I would literally, if you are living with someone who is negative, I would feel compassion, but not feel a compulsion to fix everything or to react to the negativity or, you know, to, you can block it out. Just using the tech you ground, fill yourself with your own light, push it out a bit, push it off your field. And then it's really just noise that doesn't have any meaning unless you choose to put one on it. I mean, it's just words usually, isn't it? The reason it feels heavy is because you've let it in. Now, I've heard you speak about biophotons a little bit. So I'd love for you to chat a little bit more about that and the research that you found on biophotons. Light is just an expression of energy, like sound. And we, we talked about Madhu and how he healed his spinal cord with vibration from sound. And at the end of the book, I tell a story. I, in this book, I go to Japan to work with some amazing healers, including a monk called Hiroyuki Abe, who I still work with today. I had a class online with him this morning. He's an amazing healer and a, a wonderful, generous teacher. And when I was with him in Japan, he asked me if I would like 
to have my chakras open. I was in a classroom with some of his students and his students gasped because he doesn't do this very often. And it usually he waits like 20 years to open someone's what he calls chakras. But the translation in Japanese is divine gate, open your connection to source energy. And I took it a little lightly looking back, you know, I'd lived in California and I was a little like, yeah, open my chakras. <laughs> and then he was inside my, he was doing his thing and I had my eyes shut and I could feel him moving things in my body. And I was like, goodness, this is a, this is a thing. <laughs> I wonder what I'll be like when this is over. And it went on for several minutes. And when I opened my eyes, I looked at his beautiful students who were all looking at me very intently. And all I could see was light. And I began to understand that we are light. Earlier in the book, I'd written about the holographic nature of the universe. And you can talk to physicists. There's a lovely book actually called The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot that goes into this in some depth. But, you know, our reality has much more plasticity than we understand. And I never really saw human beings the same way again. I didn't continue to see them just as light because that would have been very inconvenient, I think. But it took me on a study or a, a journey to look at biophotons. And it turns out that every cell in our body has light. Some have more than others. And interestingly, cancer cells lose their light. Uh, they stop emitting light. And so clearly light is very important to the health of a cell. And we're talking about cellular awareness uh, in this podcast and also in my book. And so I think what I was seeing as he opened my divine, divine gate was us as we really are, which is at some level light. That light is part of how we communicate with each other and within our bodies. Absolutely. That could not be more true. Now in your book, you talk about how, you know, you've had a lot of experience with healers from all around the world who of course work very differently. Now I'm curious, is there anything that you found in common between a lot of the healers that you've interacted with? Yes, I did actually. And it's very simple. The good healers, the effective healers make people feel safe. It's the very thing I was talking about before. If I, Hiroyuki Abe, I spent some time with him on Zoom this morning, and I always feel like the safest person in the world in his presence. I could tell him anything. <laughs> he wouldn't judge me. It's an interesting relationship from that point of view. And in fact, one of the reasons I stress so hard in this book that everybody can do this was because I went to have a look at charlatans at one point, and I was expecting to find people who were charging an enormous amount of money to do absolutely nothing, which was sort of the definition of a charlatan in my head. And I did meet the occasional one of those, but far less than you would think. But I met a whole category of people who um, had some talent, often coming from ego. So they were, you know, it was a little... It would drain them was often a warning sign, but they had some talent, but then they used it to manipulate and have control over people. And I saw, you know, think Bikram, if you've seen the Bikram documentary on Netflix, yes. he was undoubtedly talented, but his ego meant that he used it to have control over people. And I was so concerned about this. I, I ran into one particular healer who was just the, a case study in sort of healing from the ego and using it to advance and using people. And so I rang the head of psychiatry and law at Harvard, a man called Dr. Thomas Guttheil, who is a forensic psychiatrist. He, in fact, founded the Department of Psychiatry and Law at Harvard. And he gave me some guidelines for weeding out exploitative healers. And they proved to be very good. And one of the things he said to me is the only thing a healer should be getting from, including a doctor, um, anyone should be getting from their medical therapeutic relationship is their fee and the satisfaction of having done a good job. So if people are trying to get other things from you, social introductions, career advancement, sex, obviously being a big one, then that is not a, that's a huge red flag and you should run. And I thought that the best thing I could do in the book was teach people how to do this for themselves so that they always knew they had the power and they didn't hand their power over to someone who was exploitative. And funnily enough, I looked at 
the John of God, who is was in um, Brazil, and I, he was in my book proposal because I met with him. And according to Dr. Goodchild's list of red flags, I weeded him out of my book. And my publishers, I think, were a bit upset because, quite honestly, he was the most famous healer in the world. He, you know, he Oprah had done shows on him, and there've been documentaries made about him and things like that. I weeded him out, and I stuck to my guns because you don't ask the head of psychiatry in at Harvard for advice and then ignore it, in my opinion. <laughs> and just as the book came out, it was revealed, I think he's either in jail or going to jail. He had sexually abused over 600 women. Wow. He had abused his power in that way. And so that was a very cautionary tale for me that this is, you can meet some people with some talent who are using it for their own ends. And Dr. Goodhall's advice is, is good. If they ask you to do anything other than pay your fee, if they're getting anything other than the enjoyment of helping people and their fee, then that's possibly a warning sign. Definitely. And I think it's obviously super important to always keep your eyes and ears open. And if you notice something strange with, let's say, a healer that you're going to, to definitely have that caution. But I do think that it is important for people to be more open to trying things like acupuncture and different forms of energy healing because of how beneficial it really can be for your body and your mind. Yes. Well, acupuncture, as you know, in the book, I looked at acupuncture very closely because it's my own modality. And I realized that as acupuncturists, we've kind of leaned in to the Western explanation for acupuncture because, uh, you know, we're licensed by the state and we work as part of the medical system. I've worked in hospitals. And so I've got used to leaning into that. And the physiological effects of acupuncture are kind of measurable. You can show with Doppler ultrasound that it improves circulation. You can show with thermal imaging that it reduces inflammation. You can show with MRIs of the brain that it changes the perception of pain in the brain. You can show that it releases endorphins. And so we've got very entranced by this, but I wondered how it worked energetically. And I looked at some studies that were, I started with some studies that were done at the University of Vermont Medical School by a woman called Dr. Helen Langerban that showed that the acupuncture points are quite unique. They have a different pull force. If you put a needle in and you pull it out, it's harder to pull out of the acupuncture points, only about 20% harder, but it is harder. And what happens is when you put the needle in, the connective tissue under the skin winds around the needle like spaghetti on a fork. And as it does, it increases its conductivity. Connective tissue is quite electroconductive. It has a high collagen content, which means it has a high water content. So it does conduct electricity and it conducts more when it's wound around an acupuncture needle and those um, uh, that connective tissue is stretched in that way. And interestingly, that stretch can, um, stays until the needles are taken out. And I wondered why. I was like, well, why would the acupuncture points be more prone to that than other, you know, be more electroconductive, in fact? And it turns out that the answer is probably in embryology. When embryos create themselves in the womb, they do it electrically. And you can actually go on YouTube and there's a video called Electric Frog Face that shows a frog embryo making itself. And there's just like lightning going across its face. And to do that, the embryo creates little nodes, which are jumping off points for the next part of the body. So for instance, there's a node at the elbow. And when it is activated electrically, it buds off the beginning of the forearm. And if you look at those embryological nodes, they are in the same place as the major acupuncture points. So I think the tissue that created us, that was specifically electroconductive in order to create us, can still be used to regulate us once we're here. And I think that might explain why acupuncture points are a little different to other parts of the body. That's fascinating. And something else about acupuncture that I find to be very interesting is that you might need to put a needle in a spot in your body for like, let's say there's a point near your foot or your toe, and that might actually be used to treat something, you know, in your upper body. So the needle is not necessarily going to go into the exact body part that actually needs the healing. It's actually the signal that goes from a different point. Well, yes. And I looked at that in the book too, because that's always very perplexing or it's often very perplexing. And I tell the story in the book, I worked in a labor and delivery department in a hospital in New York. I ran the acupuncture department. And when we gave acupuncture to women in labor, there's a point on the lower leg that we could show opens the cause cervical dilation. And the doctors would say to me, well, we can see it working, but how does it work? And at the time, I rather lamely would say, I don't actually know, um, <laughs> which was a dream. 
but I think I do now uh, further on in my career. It would appear that the fascia, which runs everywhere in the body, is highly electroconductive. Again, it's a form of connective tissue that wraps our muscles and organs and forms pathways all over the body. And it's even what's called piezoelectric. It creates its own electric charge. And if you look at the, a map of the fascial planes, the major fascial planes, they are in the same place as the meridians. So I think the Chinese possibly didn't know about fascia, but they did see these areas of conduction. And I think the acupuncture points being very conductive tissue from when we were embryos set off a reaction in the fascia that over the years, thousands of years, the Chinese worked out which points reached which areas. It's a really great explanation because I think a lot of us who have gotten acupuncture have not always understood why you know a needle is going into a specific spot. So thank you for clearing that up. And now acupuncture is super healing, and I encourage you know everyone around me to give it a try and to definitely check out your amazing centers. But for somebody who wants to find daily ways that they can incorporate energy medicine into their lives, what are some of your favorite tips or routines that you recommend? I know that in your book, at the end of each chapter, you have a heal yourself section, which I found to be very useful. But could you give us a little overview on the best way to incorporate more energy medicine into our daily lives? Yes, I did write sections at the end of every chapter. So the book, Energy Medicine, the Science and History of Mystery of Healing will be helpful, I think. But really start with understanding that you are a consciousness as well as a physical body and that the two live symbiotically within you so that you know it's possible. I think a good introduction to energy medicine is either Reiki or acupuncture. Acupuncture is a board board certified and licensed and they, they go to school for four or five years. And the licensure ensures standards of ethics. And, you know, if people are licensed, they can lose their license if they're unethical. And I think that protects the public in some ways. So my suggestion would be you could start with acupuncture or Reiki, which is often, if you're scared of needles, Reiki is a good idea. Reiki practitioners vary in their skill set, but you could ask around and there are some amazing Reiki practitioners out there. And that would be a good place to start. I think. Now, it seems like a lot of your success comes from passion and hard work and definitely mindset. So I'm really curious what your morning routine looks like. Well, I have been on lockdown. We're recording this during or at the end of the coronavirus lockdown. So um, I like to start the morning with some intention and I like to end the day with some gratitude. I think that's a decent mindset. So I tend to have a theme for the day that is sort of something I'm working on. And then I like to be quiet before I see patients particularly. I like to be centered. So I have in my bedroom a little I'm in my bedroom now talking to you, so I'm looking at it, and a little meditation stool. And I sit on my stool, um, not for long, for about 10 minutes, and just get myself grounded and centered and my mind empty. And then I um, get to work on Zoom at the moment. And then at the end of the day, I like to just write down what I've been grateful for so that I don't dwell on the more stressful stuff. It sounds like an amazing routine. And I'm glad that you mentioned gratitude because there's also been a lot of studies done on the importance of expressing gratitude and the shift that it really does make to our energy and well-being. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, it just shifts your space. Life it can be very stressful and our minds have a tendency to dwell on the negative. I think I know mine does. And I have to kind of discipline it, particularly in times that are trying. And I, I have felt that this... We have three thriving centers in New York and we had to shut them for three months. And I I would say to my husband, it's just one long serenity prayer. (laughs) I I can only do the things I can control. I'm, I'm seeing patients on Zoom. I'm doing energy work on Zoom and prescribing herbs. And I just have to assume that, you know, the bit I can't control will come into alignment at some point. That's a great mindset to have. And I'm glad that you shared that with us because, you know, we all definitely have our struggles and our moments of weakness, but it's important to just try to control what we can and have faith that everything else will work out. And I know that you've had a really fascinating journey thus far and you have a very promising journey ahead, but I'm curious if you could go back and give yourself advice to your 20-year-old self, what would that advice be and why? Oh, you're not separate. I spent a lot of my life 
like most people do in the illusion, the sort of ego illusion that my physical body was all it is and that I'm separate from other people. And that causes all that jockeying for position. You know, am I better? Am I worse? All that self-consciousness, will I look worse? Will people judge me? And these days my husband laughs because he says I'm unfettered. Um, (laughs) It's because I feel safe in the universe. I understand I rippled out of the Dow and I will ripple back at some point and that I'm not remotely important in the overall plan of things, but I'm also a microcosm of a much bigger universe. And from that point of view, like all human beings, I have value and I wish I'd known that younger. Now, if you could have tea with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, it's such an interesting question. Well, you know, I'm going to pick someone alive and I'm going to pick someone from my book, a man called Master Kawakami, who is on an island to the south of Japan in a place called Fukuoka. And I haven't seen him since I was writing the book. Hiroyuki Abe has continued to be my teacher, so I do see him on Zoom. But Master Kawakami is in his 80s and I would love to go and have tea with him again. He was one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. I think he was a bodybuilder in the 1970s and he decided to work on his insides and he became a very highly developed yogi and he has extraordinary control over his consciousness. He can leave his body. It's kind of, he's a magical man, but he's also a very sweet, kind man. And again, someone who makes you feel very safe. And he's one of the most psychic people I've ever met. He knew all about me, things he couldn't possibly have known about my childhood from the moment I met him. And I always said to him, Sensei, I'm going to come back and study with you. And he said to me, well, don't worry. I'm going to live till I'm 120. And I I sort of believed him, actually. I was like, well, thank goodness, because I'm busy. But at some point, I would like to get on a plane and then a train (laughs) and get myself to Fukuoka, to his little yoga school, and sit and have beautiful green tea with Master Kawakami again. Well, please let me know when and if you do, because I want to join. (laughs) Yes, we could all go and have tea with Master Kamikami. That would be amazing. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for all the incredible wisdom that you shared with us today. And I know you have so much more wisdom to share. You have amazing books out there, an incredible center. So for anyone out there listening who wants to connect with you and learn more about your work, where are the best places to reach you at? Yes, come and see us at the center. You can find us online at yanovacenter.com. That's Y-I-N-O-V-A, center spelt the American way, dot com. We have three centers in New York with lots of really talented practitioners of Chinese medicine. You can also see me on Zoom where I'm happy to give you advice and do energy work online and prescribe herbs. And you can buy energy medicine, the science and mystery of healing at all good bookshops. It's still in shops and online. Amazing. Well, I encourage everyone out there listening to come visit your centers and definitely to read your book. I'm such a big fan of the book. It has had a really profound impact on me. So I think everyone should read this book. That was so much fun. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you so much for joining us on our episode with the amazing Jill Blakeway. We all go through life experiencing different emotions and often fail to recognize the profound impact that our energy and thoughts have on our mindset and overall well-being. Jill provides a lot of compelling research, experiences, and insight on the importance of energy medicine and its healing abilities. We encourage you to pick up a copy of Jill's eye-opening book, Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. As always, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch with us on Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay healthy, stay hydrated, and keep your vibrations high. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.